Welcome to the My Psychology Podcast. Thanks for joining us. My name is Andy Pomerantz, and I'm a psychology professor at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. I also happen to be the author of the My Psychology textbook from Macmillan Learning. In each episode of this podcast, instructors from various colleges and universities join me to talk about the most important and most interesting parts of the chapter to help you understand and appreciate them. As we do, we will share some stories about our own experiences with concepts from the chapter from inside or outside of the classroom. Okay, today we're talking about chapter 15 of the book, the chapter on therapy. And I am joined by two instructors of uh, introductory psychology classes uh, who also use the My Psychology textbook. First, we have Nicole Brandt. She is an assistant professor of psychology at Columbus State Community College in Columbus, Ohio. Hi, Nicole. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad to have you. And uh, we also have Ava Selly, who is a principal lecturer in the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University. Hi, Ava. Hi, Andy. Thanks for having me. So here's a quick summary of Chapter 15, Therapy. After a review of the history of the treatment of psychological disorders, the chapter gets into different kinds of therapy for individual clients, including psychodynamic, person-centered, behavioral, and cognitive therapies, as well as combinations like the eclectic and integrative approaches. It then describes group therapy and family therapy, as well as the importance of cultural and diversity variables in any format of therapy. The next section covers some ethical issues in therapy like confidentiality, informed consent, and multiple relationships. Then there's a discussion of telepsychology or therapy that uses modern technology like video conferencing between client and therapist. The chapter then closes with a section on biomedical therapies, including the wide range of psychiatric drugs, as well as electroconvulsive therapy and transcranial magnetic stimulation. Nicole, let's start with you. What's, what, what is one of the topics from this chapter on therapy that you'd like to bring up? I always like to bring up behavior therapy because it also links back to the chapter six on learning. And I also, I happen to be a licensed clinical psychologist. So this is one of my favorite chapters to talk with students because I get to share some of my clinical experience with them. And so we talk about behavior therapy and the different strategies of how we can change behaviors in clients. And I spend a lot of time talking with them about how we use reinforcement and punishment um, to change behaviors and the systematic desensitization. And I share an experience, one of my favorite clinical experiences I ever had, which was, I'm realizing now, 15 years ago, I spent a summer in Buffalo as a counselor for children with ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And I use that experience to talk to my students about token economy and how we would give our clients, so they were five and six years old, we would give them a token when they did a behavior that was desirable. So maybe they were following an instruction or sharing something, um, being respectful. And so we'd give them tokens. And then when they did something undesirable, we would take tokens away. And at the end of the day, we added up all their tokens and they got some sort of reward. And this was really intense. I spent about eight to nine hours a day with about a dozen children with ADHD. And then we talk about how effective the token economy was but we also talk about once that summer camp was over and they went back to school, our team followed them in school and the schools were not able to maintain the level of token economy that we did in the summer. That is a great, uh, a great story. One question that comes to my mind is what were some of the reinforcements for which the students could, could trade their tokens? Sure. So we worked with the parents and collaborated with them. Some of the kids, it would be dessert at dinner. That was a really popular one or a half an hour of some kind of technology, like a video game 
or watching TV, or quite honestly, we really encourage things like quality time with a parent or the kid gets to pick what everyone's having for dinner. So it didn't have to be something that cost money or that was really elaborate. And so then the next day when kids would come back to camp, we'd say, well, what was your reward last night? And that was also our double check that the parents were holding up their end of the deal. <laughs> right. So they didn't receive their actual rewards at camp. So like I said, that was at home, but it was also to be personalized for the kid. Yeah. Ava, what about you from chapter 15? So chapter 15 is a great chapter. I'm also a clinician. I don't practice right now, but uh, I was trained as a clinical psychologist. So this, this sort of hits home for me. But from a teaching perspective, what I love about this chapter is that it really bookends the course for me. So in the beginning of the semester, we started out talking about these various schools of thought in psychology. And when we talk about those, I talk about the interrelationship among them and how they, they approached the experience of being a person, a human being from these different perspectives. And now we're talking about those schools of thought and how they're approaching problems that people have from different those same different perspectives. So I just really like the fact that this chapter sort of brings all of that home from the perspective not of just the sort of general how we view people, but now how we address problems that people have. And I really emphasize the fact that therapy isn't, you know, is is about people having difficulties. It's not just about mental illness and treating mental illness. It's about people that have various types of challenges in everyday life. And these are just three different approaches to dealing with those challenges. Yeah. When, when students can make that, that sort of grand connection that you're describing there, when they can, when they can make that connection that if this is how you understand people, then this is how you would help people who are struggling with a with a problem that that jumping from the the fundamental theory about uh, about the the psychology of human beings to the the application of that theory it's just sort of a nice way to pull it all together if they can make that connection right so ava did you have another topic from chapter 15 that you wanted to to bring up well uh one of the things that i found interesting so i, I as a clinician i did individual psychotherapy for a while. When you are a clinician and you're working with a person, the relationship you have with that person, you know, in the textbook we we you know talk about transference, for example, that happens within that dyadic therapeutic relationship. However, when you're working with a couple or a group or a family, you can step in and out of the dynamic of what's going on in the therapy session and you get you're essentially working with a system some sort of system there and now you're not just talking about what people are saying but how they're saying it to each other how they're interacting and the reason i emphasize this with my students is because you know there's this presumption that students have of, of understanding what therapy is. Like, oh, I understand what therapy is. You go, you tell somebody their, your problems, and then they tell you what to do to get over those problems. And that's therapy. And There's a lot of advice in that, in that common understanding. Exactly. And it's just, it's so much more complex than that. And so there's the content of what people talk about in therapy, but there's also the process that happens in therapy. And so transference is 
an example of that kind of process. And the neat thing that I found in working with, with couples and groups and families was that you get to really work on that process. You get to sort of roll up your sleeves and watch the dynamic, point the dynamic out. Wow, when, when you know, you said that, you seem to be reacting to somebody, what somebody said earlier, what, what was going on there? And you get to be not just a participant, but also an observer in the therapeutic session as a, as a clinician. And I always found that a particularly exciting form of psychotherapy. And so it just, I think, highlights for students that maybe therapy is a little bit more complicated than they imagine. Let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, we will continue to discuss chapter 15, the therapy chapter in the My Psychology textbook. The My Psychology podcast is brought to you by Launchpad from Macmillan Learning. When I wrote My Psychology, I wanted students to maximize their connection to the science of psychology, and Launchpad does just that. It's the one place where you can find the full ebook of My Psychology, features like My Take videos, chapter apps, and show me more links, and Macmillan's full library of resources, including videos, flashcards, concept practice activities, and more. Best of all, Launchpad includes the Learning Curve Adaptive Quizzing System, designed based on cognitive research to improve your learning and help you retain information over time. In addition, the Learning Curve algorithm chooses questions based on your performance, delivering a quiz that is unique to you. If you aren't using Launchpad already, you can sign up for a free trial right now. That's right, you can get 21 days of free access right now by visiting launchpadworks.com and searching for my psychology that's launchpadworks.com sign up now for your 21 days of free access and start studying with the learning curve adaptive quizzing system Welcome back. Again, I'm Andy Pomerantz, and I'm a professor of psychology at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville and the author of the My Psychology textbook. I'm here with Nicole Brandt, who is an assistant professor of psychology at Columbus State Community College in Columbus, Ohio, and Ava Selly, who is a principal lecturer in the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University. They use the My Psychology textbook as well, and we are talking about chapter 15, the chapter on therapy. So, Nicole, any other topics that you wanted to bring up from chapter 15? Yeah, actually, this conversation got me thinking about the ethics section of that chapter, which usually I t we talk in my class about all of the other parts of chapter 15 first, but I love ending with the discussion of ethics. And I think there's so many misperceptions students have about going to a therapist. And so we talk a lot about informed consent and the importance of really understanding the limits of confidentiality and, and what does confidentiality mean and if you're seeing, for example, a child, who do you share that information with? Or if you're seeing an adult who has a partner, you can't share that information with that partner unless you have a signed consent form for that. And we'd spend a lot of time talking about boundaries of competence. So working within your area of expertise, as well as the multiple relationships issue. And so the very first day of the semester with my students, I tell them, you know, I'm assistant professor at Columbus State, but I'm also a licensed clinical psychologist, but I can't be your therapist because so many of my students say, I really need help and I want you to be my therapist. I feel comfortable with you. And so that kind of links back to that very first day. And I say, okay, remember that first day when I said, I can't be your therapist. And this is why, because it's an ethical dilemma. I can't have a multiple relationship with my students. And then of course, they typically ask questions about other things like therapists having romantic relationships with clients, which is unethical and, and so forth. But 
we try to go through lots of examples where it's can be a gray area of ethics, such as when do you break confidentiality? If you know that a client is thinking of hurting themselves or somebody else, you know, what is the procedure for that and so forth? And so we usually have a really deep, great conversation about those dilemmas because it's not always black and white. And I've been in that situation as a clinician and I think they get really interested hearing the thought process and how we go through that. Yeah. And uh, I should mention that I, I, too, am a clinical psychologist. So we're, we're three for three here as far as being clinical psychologists. And I, I have found not only in the introductory psychology class, but in other classes I teach as well, this topic of ethical issues in, in psychotherapy is is fascinating to a lot of students. I think it's really important for a couple of reasons. One is that I think people often have kind of a naive understanding of the the ethics or sort of the practicalities of psychotherapy. I think a lot of people presume that confidentiality is absolute, that when you're going to talk to a therapist, it's it's 100% confidential with no exceptions. And that's simply not true. And there are good reasons for that not being true, including the protection of, of, of someone else who might be at risk when the, when, the, when the therapist finds out that there's a child being abused or that the client is intending, you know, is, is in, in a very believable way is saying they're going to go you know, hurt or kill somebody, there might be good reason to break confidentiality or protect somebody who might be at risk. Maybe I'm a bit cynical, but the, the media has really misled people into believing that it is at least common and maybe acceptable for therapists to engage in blatant, often harmful, multiple relationships with their clients. I mean, right. every time I see a TV show or a movie that features a psychotherapist, you can pretty much count on that that therapist doing something that is sort of multiple relationship-ish. Sometimes it's very blatant and and clearly harmful to the client. Um, other times it may be a little let a little more subtle and a little you know perhaps questionable rather than being blatantly wrong. But there's you almost never see any consequences for that. But never never does the the show or the movie play out in such a way that the therapist gets in trouble. I agree. I provide a real life example of this that, that helps highlight certain issues, which is I had a client who had been referred to me after a failed run of psychotherapy with somebody else in the community. And what had happened was when she was a minor, her parents took her to a therapist because there was a family secret that they couldn't bring them to themselves to disclose to her. So they literally sort of dropped her off at the therapist and asked the therapist to tell her, which is already problematic, but was just the first layer of issues here because what happened was that the therapist actually did this, which is already debatably ethical. But what happened was when the, when the young woman started telling the therapist things that the parents did not approve of, the parents withdrew their financial support of the therapy. And at this point, the, the young woman was very dependent on the therapist because they had forged a bond over this, this secret that she'd been told. So the therapist, in a misguided, well-meaning gesture, agreed to continue seeing the young woman in therapy in barter for for receptionist services she needed a receptionist so she said to the young woman who was about who had just turned recently turned 18 hey you know you can work as my receptionist to pay off your you know your therapy sessions and again <laughs> sort of the layers of problems in this scenario are just 
unbelievable. But this particular example, in terms of multiple relationships, this is a problem. Never mind the sort of um, psychological issues that this young woman was grappling with, but now the one person that that knew this secret, that she could talk about this secret to her, was now sort of her employer, but she wasn't really clear on how long she was going to have to work, whether, you know, what the what the exchange rate was for number of hours worked for the therapy sessions that she was getting. And it just turned into a, just a really harmful relationship yeah. for her. One more topic that I wanted to bring up from chapter 15 is the topic of, uh, of common factors. And, and specifically what that means is common factors in, in therapies that work. And researchers came upon these common factors by, by discovering that lots of different forms of therapy, even though they, they may involve different techniques and different, different activities done in different ways by, by different therapists, most of the therapies that work well share some basic fundamental underlying elements, these, these common factors. And it is those common factors that are the active ingredient that actually make the, the therapy work. And the most well-established common factor of all is the, the therapeutic alliance, kind of a, a good quality relationship between a therapist and a client that feels like a collaboration and feels like a feels like two people working constructively toward the same goals. Nicole and Ava, what, what's your experience teaching that uh, those concepts, the, the, the common factors or more specifically the, the therapeutic alliance? So I think that understanding what those common factors are and then how that informs students to be potential consumers of therapy, if they find themselves or a family or friend in need of therapy, to sort of understand, first of all, that the most important factor in finding a therapist is working, you know, finding somebody you can work with. Because if that therapeutic alliance is going to be important, this is not like going to a doctor where they're going to give you an injection or a prescription and it doesn't really matter if you like them or not, or they like you, or, you know, as long as you get the appropriate treatment here, the therapeutic alliance sort of is the treatment. So finding somebody that works for you, that understands your cultural background, that, that you connect with and whose approach works for you and for whatever problem that you're dealing with. I think that's probably the most important takeaway for students from this particular section. Yeah. And just to, just to add to that, I talked to my students that it's, it's okay to try going to a therapist a few times and then deciding hey, this is not a good fit for me. Absolutely. Um, again, it could be someone very highly regarded that was recommended by multiple people who have wonderful credentials. But if that trusting relationship is not there, if the chemistry, if you will, is not there, it's not going to be helpful. So I try to empower my students, kind of like you said, Ava, if, if you're going to seek therapy for yourself, it's okay to kind of shop around and try different people until you find a good fit because that is so important. You could go to two different cognitive behavioral therapists and they have very different styles and, and maybe both of them, maybe one is going to match and one is not going to be a good match. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think a lot of people feel like they can't change who they go to, but they absolutely can, can try out different therapists. Yeah. And related to this, I often talk about how the therapist and client should really be a team together. You know, it's not just that the therapist is the expert. The client is an expert on who they are, and it should really be a teamwork, developing treatment goals and working on them together, 
and so forth. It's a team effort for that person to feel better with whatever they're struggling with. Definitely. Yeah, I agree with that. So as we're, as we're approaching the end of this episode of the podcast, Ava, Nicole, are there any last concepts or last ideas from chapter 15 that you wanted to just briefly mention uh, and, and highlight for students? You know, one thing that I usually end with with this chapter is a discussion of stigma, that a lot of people don't go to therapy because of the stigma about going. And so we kind of conclude this chapter with the best way to reduce that is conversation and normalizing. So not that we start talking about everyone's experience in therapy by any means, but just that it's okay to go to therapy and 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 to talk about mental health difficulties or just the struggles that people are having. And so we usually end with a nice conversation about how we can reduce stigma. Absolutely. And the fact that that people go to therapy for lots of different reasons. Yeah, they may not have a mental health disorder. They might just be struggling with their own personal growth or a decision that they have to make. Yeah, and whether they do or don't have a have a, a formal psychological disorder, it's admirable. What they're doing is not is is in my opinion is not something to be stigmatized, but something to be admired, something to be recognized as an act of courage and and, and commitment to making themselves a better person. So, so I, I hope that students come away from from chapter fifteen with that kind of an understanding. Uh, well, thank you to both Ava Selly from Arizona State University and Nicole Brandt from Columbus State Community College for, uh, for joining me today in our discussion of Chapter 15, the therapy chapter of the My Psychology textbook. And thanks to you for listening. We hope this podcast helps you learn and appreciate the material in this chapter. Of course, you should check with your own instructor to see what's most important in your own class. And for more resources for studying this chapter, check out Launchpad at launchpadworks.com. Talk to you again soon.